welcome to Spotlights, the podcast for the Yale Forum on Religion and Ecology. As usual, I'm your host, Sam Mickey, and uh, this week is actually part two of a two-part episode. So last week was the uh, beginning of it, featuring Dekila Chunyalpa, and uh, she's back with part two to finish discussing her really amazing trajectory of work in the field of religion and ecology. Last time we talked about uh, her work with Sacred Earth and the World Wildlife Fund, and now we're going to get more into a recent project, the LOCA Initiative, uh, hosted at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So I'm really excited to hear more from Dekila today. So after, after Sacred Earth and WWF, I moved to Yale. They had given me this wonderful fellowship and award. Um, uh, and I had the time for the first time after five years to sit down and analyze what had happened because the, I'd spent the five years just running around trying to mobilize this, right? And so, um, and I went back and was able to interview a lot of the faith leaders I'd worked with, uh, faith leaders I hadn't. Um, and there were some takeaways for me that were really critical. And mm. one of them was, I really wanted to move away from what I see as false choices. Mm. I really wanted to move away from this idea, what I think of as a very purist idea of what good conservation is, what good climate work is, what good, you know, and we kind of create factions within our own community so much, right? Which is like, oh, it's mitigation or adaptation. God forbid it's both. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I mean, we just have these narratives that keep going, I mean, just very conflict driven. Mm -hmm. And I think it comes from, I mean, I could get into a whole conversation about why we do that and what our paradigm is and what our education systems teach us. But ultimately what I knew was I wanted to build a program that said, as long as you do something, I'm okay with that. (laughs) Whatever that something is, you know, people have different capacities. People have different um, resources. People have different kinds of threats they're dealing with in their lives. Um, We cannot demand that everybody meet us where we are. We have to go where people are. We have to meet them where they are. You know, you cannot ask, you cannot ask, you know, let's say like you cannot ask an immigrant woman who's a single mother who's living in a disaster prone area that she should care and fight on climate mitigation in the way you do. Right. You know, she, her energy needs to be on adaptation. Her energy has to be on resilience building. Yeah. Like, that is the best thing we in the solutions and science community can do for them, right? For her. And so I think the other part for me that was really important was that whatever I built next had to come from a place of compassion, had to understand and be able to put ourselves in, in the shoes of what people are going through and meet them where they are. And so I don't think it's any surprise that, you know, after 12 years, I now do work with evangelical leaders, right? With a whole variety of them on climate issues mm. and care issues. And I couldn't in the beginning because, you know, the world I was in was designed that way, was designed right. in a hierarchy. And everything, whether it was solutions or geographies or places, were all based on hierarchy. Um, and now I can sort of have this way, I think that it, it allows me to create a bridge in a way that I couldn't before. And when I think about the LOCA initiative, so the LOCA initiative emerged because I had those few years at Yale to sit and think and design something. So when I designed the LOCA initiative, 
I knew that I really wanted to avoid the, that, those kinds of narratives. I knew I wanted to build a program on compassion and meet faith leaders where they are um, and be able to meet all of their needs. So if they show up and say, well, the issue I'm really worried about is, you know, uh, is waterborne diseases, right. then I could turn to someone and say, I have an expert for you, <laughs> right? Um, and so... Of course, the LOCA initiative had to be based at a university. And I was really lucky because at that time when I was designing it, I didn't know what it would look like or what its home would be. But as it happened, the University of Wisconsin-Madison invited me to create a program here. Um, and the three people that invited me and were wonderful was um, Richie Davidson, who is a neuroscientist who studies the impact of mindfulness actually on the brain mm-hmm. and looks at in specifically looks at how neuroplasticity increases when you might meditate. Mm-hmm. So he has a program called the Center for Healthy Minds. And he was really interested in understanding the impact of nature on well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Jonathan Patz, who some of your listeners might know, he was part of the team that won the Nobel Prize, uh, the IPCC team that won the Nobel Prize back in the day. Um, he is a climate health expert and he heads the Global Health Initiative. Um, at Dr. Paul Robbins, who is the dean for the Nelson Institute of Environmental Studies. So I had basically a psychology, I had someone from psychology, I had someone from environment, and then I had someone from health. And it was just like magical. <laughs> it was like, again, it's like, you know, it really makes me feel, I mean, as a Buddhist, I have to say, I, I really believe that if you can keep your motivation pure mm. and stay faithful to having a humble, you know, what's the word I want? Dedication, like ha- mm. having humility about your motivation and your dedication, then the answers come to you. Right. And so that's how it felt. You know, wow. we, my husband very kindly agreed to give up his very nice job and move to Madison with me. Um, and we, I was able to launch the LOCA initiative in 2019. Wow. That's really remarkable. Yeah. I mean, the idea of keeping your motivations pure, like, oh, after once I would have started working with the Karmapa, I would have been bragging to my friends and, you know, there goes the humility right out the window. There's no NDA. Like, it's not like you have to sign an NDA, but, you know, you don't get in that door if you you're gonna talk about it you don't really get in the door in the first place. that makes sense yeah. that's, that's why i haven't gotten in that door yet <laughs> like now we can't trust this guy <laughs> oh that's remarkable so then you've been uh doing the local initiative for a couple of years now yeah. um including one year during a pandemic uh which i yeah. imagine really <laughs> highlights the importance of all of this work yeah, you just reminded me that I need to go check the website and tick off everything we haven't done because <laughs> it was just the plan that we had versus what we ended up doing. <laughs> it's just like they've gone, they've gone different directions, you know. Right. Um, yeah. So the Loka Initiative is a capacity building and outreach platform for faith leaders and culture keepers of indigenous traditions. Um, we work on very generally on environmental climate and um, health or sustainability issues the way I see it. But 
I think it comes back to UW being a public university. That's really, it's one of the big 10, right? Mm -hmm. So there is just enormous capacity at the faculty and student level. So depending on what the faith leaders tell us they want, we're able to meet a lot of their needs, not all of course, but as much of their needs as possible. Um, We are working closely with very few, uh, three basically, what I think of as three communities or stakeholder groups, you would say. Um, So we are working with a set of evangelical leaders. I'm working with um, heads of three or four different evangelical organizations, including the World Evangelical Association, um, Care of Creation and Arosha. Um, And so we have this whole program going around dialogue around creation, care and climate change and the role of the mother church. Um, And all of this happens closed door. So, you know, we want to engender trust. We want to have dialogues that are difficult. Right. And that requires intimacy. And 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 I think. sort of requires, like, even if we we're going to disarm, the only way we disarm ourselves is in neutral safe spaces. Mm-hmm. And so LOCA is working on providing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we work with several scientists from the university side and then the faith leaders and they come together and we design projects together and solutions and ideas and so on. Um, we are also working with indigenous communities, especially um, Indian tribes in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Um, LOCA has two uh, local indigenous advisors. So we have uh, Janice Rice, who's a clan mother from the Ho-Chunk Nation, which is, which is you know, the lands that the UW occupies is Ho-Chunk land. So it's really important to us. And we also have Gary Besaw, who was the ex-chief of the Menominee tribe, which is a little north of us. And uh, the Menominee tribe are probably one of the best foresters <laughs> in on the planet. They are just have this indigenous knowledge that is still intact about how to manage forests. And they are one of the best managed forests in the world. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's not just that. Uh, one thing I really want to say and emphasize is it's not just that LOCA is providing the education, right? It works both ways. And going back to what I learned and what I really wanted in the sort of baked into the design of LOCA was that there is a two-way street when we think about knowledge and wisdom. If we think about science and religion as methods, these are both truth-seeking methods. These are both methods that are trying to make sense of the world and the role of humanity in it. And that means both of these traditions have knowledge and wisdom that are relevant to the other group. You know, it doesn't, again, going back to this idea of no false sort of competition, right? None of that. Then these are both groups that can provide information and much needed wisdom to each other. And so (laughs) that's just a long way of saying to me, one of the most wonderful things about um, working with Gary and working with the Menominee Nation is that the information is so obviously relevant to scientists when they talk about forestry. So it's not just, you know, we're going to talk about spirit. They very much also want to talk about food and land and forests and, you know, their wisdom and and their science, right, in how they've managed all of these resources. Um, and then the third community, of course, is the Tven Buddhist community that I mentioned, the Koryuk, and continuing that work. So that, that is a really significant part of what we do. We also are um, do a whole variety. And this year 
has been just this whirlwind of creating a public events because mm. everything had to go online. Right. Um, and a lot of it, I didn't plan it in 2019, but a lot of my energy actually went on thinking about the psychological impact of environmental and climate issues, having gone through it myself and knowing a lot of my peers, knowing that a lot of them have struggled over the years over depression, with depression, with grief, you know, with anger, all kinds of really maladaptations, right, to what we're dealing with. Um, I began really working and delving into contemplative methods that can help address these these responses, really legitimate responses. We are in existential crisis. <laughs> there is a reason why we're depressed and depressed yeah. and freaking out, you know. And then sort of let's accept that. And then now what? And so again, to me, it feels so fortuitous that I'm based at the Center for Healthy Minds, right? Because I have access to a lot of existing contemplative methods that have been tested scientifically, you know, and also have access to the Healthy Minds organization, which has its own free meditation app. Um, And so been creating different kinds of meditations for the environmental and climate community in particular. Um, And then, yeah, so I would say, I think unexpectedly, these are the things that really went forward and worked really well in um in 2020 despite maybe in spite of the pandemic and the fact that we were locked at home there are parts that didn't end up even getting and ended up getting no attention which was on my priority list in 2019 so i'm still working through meditatively being okay with being in the moment (laughs) being okay with letting go of my plan you know um yeah just meditating on impermanence quite a bit. <laughs> right. That's a great example. Well, and so much of your story is exactly that. There's kind of spontaneous things of being in the right place, but, you know, with the right intention and then great kind of opportunities keep emerging and, uh, you know, without much design sometimes, sometimes very spontaneously. And then you can kind of design stuff and then things change. And so, yeah, it's really uh, your the whole trajectory of your work is a great example of that kind of attention to uncertainty and you know non-attachment to the outcomes of what you're doing uh that's that's really great one of my friends invited me to come talk about um sort of career planning to her class and i was like i am definitely not the right person i mean i planned my career out and i left it completely in 2007 you know i'm i'm not the right person to talk about the advantages of career planning because I've never followed that plan you know but yeah I I think there is something to be said about I would say there is something really to be said about um, mental adaptiveness and adaptability I you know a lot of the time when I talk about climate change in particular I have mothers that come to talk to me afterwards and the panic they're experiencing as parents right? Trying to understand how do you protect your child in a very uncertain world, in a world that they didn't grow up in. And they they themselves, we, I mean, I'm in my mid forties now, like we grew up in a world where we still could bank on, literally bank on the fact that we would study and maybe take a loan. We would get a job that would help us pay off that loan. And then we would be safe and we could buy our houses. And you know, that's not the world 
mean, millennials, really, Generation Z is not inheriting that world. Yeah. They're inheriting a world which is filled with disaster after disaster. And we keep saying record-breaking disaster, but I don't know how, how much we can use this term record-breaking. <laughs> that's true. Um, and what they see is a world that's really, in some sense, unreliable. Mm-hmm. Right. So a deep distrust for leaders, government leaders and private sector and private what, what we grew up thinking are are the leaders of the free world or the leaders in our society, our leaders, you know, in a free market. None of that is acceptable to them because, of course, collectively, all these leaders have let them down. We have given them a world that is completely unsustainable and is on fire. Right. Yeah. Um, and. So when mothers come to me to ask this question, I mean, and I think one of the things we in the climate and environmental science world really have to be careful with our messaging is that we don't make people feel hopeless. Mm -hmm. You know, there has to be this balance between preparing people (laughs) for the worst (laughs) while also empowering them and infusing them with courage that they can protect themselves right and i feel like going back to this idea of adaptation versus mitigation this is kind of where we are we have a real problem with our messaging and again probably represents our paradigms but Mm -hmm. you know the the problem with the messaging is that for those who are in the mitigation camp it's just so pollyannish right which is we can do it like technology will fix it if not technology kumbaya and we'll come together (laughs) and then you have the adaptation camp where it's like okay we are in deep what's the word i want i can't use probably that (laughs) we are in a really deep pit and i'm not sure we can climb out of it and so panic right and somewhere we have to find a way to say both things need to happen Let's be sane about what we are communicating to the public because only communicating the extremes of either vision is not going to help anybody. And I think for me, going back to, you know, starting from a place of compassion is just imagine you're telling a mother that her child is going to be unsafe. Mm -hmm. That's what we're telling these people. We're telling people your child is now going to be extremely unsafe and there's nothing you can do about it. And in what way is that helpful and constructive, right? So my answer to these mothers have been really, first of all, put your kids in wilderness skills training, put your kids in you know disaster preparedness training, teach them first aid, every practical skill you can think of, right? That's great. Secondly, it's teach them to be adaptive, teach them that it's okay that things change because we humans are inherently designed and love our comfort. And part of comfort is rely, like being able to rely on the fact that everything is going to stay exactly the way we want it. Right. And nothing changes unless we are prepared. (laughs) And that's not the world that that is in the world. And so we have to, teach our kids and the younger generation to be comfortable with the fact that everything is changing mm-hmm. all the time and we don't have control over it. What we do have control over is ourselves and how we react to that. And that requires that a mental switch go off, you know? Um, and so the last five years, the Koryuk monasteries and nunneries have almost swung completely into disaster preparedness. 
we have now hundreds of monks and nuns that are trained to be, you know, they did cert training, they're trained to be first aid responders. They can take their robes and turn it into a stretcher in five minutes. Wow. It's pretty amazing. They have the equipment. So we have, you know, basically every monastery that's part of the Koryug, um, the network has, you know, tens of monks and nuns who know how to basically react. All of these monasteries have disaster plans. All of these monasteries have safe sites. They store medicine and food and, you know, sort of recycle it every six months, water. Um, Most of them, amazingly, I was amazed, um, they switched out their very beautiful flower gardens for organic farms, basically. Mm. Grow a lot of their own vegetables. They have very practical things they've done. And the message they send to the community, you can imagine, is so influential. Mm-hmm. One of the things we saw was that um, there was a very spiritual place in Nepal called Bauda. And the monasteries that put up solar in that area, mm-hmm. within a year, the restaurants started putting up solar. Because what they figured was if it's cost effective for the monasteries, which is hundreds of monks and nuns, it'll be cost effective for us, right? right? So we know there's a real tangible impact when faith leaders take action and and very visibly demonstrate a solution, an environmental or climate solution. And I think this brings me back to the power of not just, you know, theoretical reason why faith and ecology are interconnected, but a really practical science-grounded solutions that faith institutions are pioneering. that come from their own like set of moral values and faith values, but that also are adapted for their reality, right? Yep. Um, another another reason why the Loka Initiative is designed the way it is is we see it as being in service to faith and indigenous leaders. So it's not there to to kind of expect faith leaders to join its mission. The mission is we will help you build your capacity. That's the mission, right? So it's more faith leaders tell us what they are struggling with in their community. And then we all come together to see what we can do to solve it. Um, I'll stop there. That's great. great. Yeah, I should probably stop you at some point. I could just uh, listen to these stories all day uh, because there's a, you know, I wouldn't even say optimism or hope, but courage, like the sense like, oh, wait, we can do something. And it's scary, right? That's kind of the old definition of courage is the ability to act in the face of fear. Like, yeah, the fear is very real, but look at all these possibilities. Uh, So I'll be coming up and joining the LOCA initiative soon. (laughs) It's really great. And it sounds like you're also building a model that other places can start replicating, right? We can have more things like the LOCA initiative and uh and that kind of cooperation right you're not there to tell everybody the right answers you're there to help support their work and uh yeah the successes you've had across different faith groups is just really inspiring uh so thank you so much for sharing your time and sharing uh your stories with us we'll have to have you back another time maybe you can lead us through a meditation something and uh that would be really lovely yeah, you can uh you can use the app actually if you want and there's also i think tricycles done I think they they transcribed one of the meditations and put it up. And so I really offer it to people who are struggling with eco-anxiety or climate distress in particular. There are so many of us. Um, And I think before we get to courage, we kind of need to, it's like, whatever, it's like, what's it called? Like 
X steps to mourning or X steps right. to grieving or to moving yeah. on, right? We have to let ourselves grieve and yeah. before we can get to the point where we sort of grab all our courage, right? And move yeah. forward. So Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm really, really happy to be here and talk with you, Sam. Sorry, I feel like I just blabbed. <laughs> nope, not at all. That's that's the uh, the description <laughs> it's supposed to be because people hear enough from me all the time. So it's not, yeah, it's not about not about this. Uh, really, just a pleasure to have you on here. Thanks so much for sharing your time, and I'll make sure to uh, put some links up on the episodes so people have access to the Loke Initiative, the app, meditations, uh, so many great points of connection. Uh, so thank you so much, Tequila, and uh, and thank you everybody for tuning in. Uh, we'll be back next week with some more conversations for you. In the meantime, take care and be well. Thank you.